wanted a minister for a growing church. A real challenge for the right man. Opportunity to become better acquainted with people. Applicant must offer experience as a shop worker, an office manager, an educator, an artist, a salesman, a diplomat, a writer, a theologian, a politician, a Boy Scout leader, a children's worker, a minor league athlete, a psychologist, a vocational counselor, a psychiatrist, a funeral director, a wedding consultant, master of ceremonies, circus clown, missionary, and social worker. That's just the small list. Must know all about the problems of birth, marriage, and death. Must also be conversant with latest theories and practices in areas like pediatrics, economics, and nuclear science. The right man will hold firm views on every topic, but is careful not to upset people who disagree. Must be forthright, but flexible. Returns criticism and backbiting with Christian love and forgiveness. Should have outgoing, friendly disposition at all times. Should be a captivating speaker and intent listener. He is directly responsible for the views and conduct of all church members, but not confined to direction or support from any one person. Salary, not commensurate with experience or need. No overtime pay. All replies kept confidential, and anyone applying will undergo full investigation to determine his sanity. That's a pastoral job posting. (laughs) Of course, it's exaggerated and it's humorous. However, it does raise um, the issue of what in the world do you look for in a new pastor? And of course, here at First Baptist, we are in the process of looking for a new pastor. So it's very, very important that we know what we should look for. Now, if that was the question I addressed to you, where in the Bible would you look to help you discover what should we look for and how do we respond to and what should a, a pastor do? The place you should go, of course, in the Bible are called the pastoral epistles. An epistle is just another fancy word for letter. And in the Bible, we have three pastoral letters. They are written by the Apostle Paul to a pastor by the name of Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are the three pastoral letters And what we're going to be doing over the next number of weeks, Lord willing, is we're going to look at the first pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy, written obviously by Paul to Timothy. The author, as I said, was Paul. Paul is the one who wrote a major portion of the New Testament. He is an apostle. He's one sent by, commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to lead the church. He wrote this letter around the year 65, 64 AD. That's just a few years or a couple years before the Apostle Paul was beheaded. He was killed by the Emperor Nero in around the year 67 or 68. So this is written toward the end of his life. But he writes it to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, whose name is Timothy. Um, His purpose in writing this letter is to help the pastor to do his job well. He writes this letter to to tell him in advance what are some of the things you're going to have to face and how do you deal with them appropriately. 
Some of the exact same problems we have in churches today are the very ones that the Apostle Paul addressed to Timothy some 2,000 years ago. So if you have a Bible, turn with me, or a cell phone, or iPad, whatever it may be, turn to the book of 1 Timothy toward the end of your Bible, and it begins with the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Two, Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's the way letters began in the ancient world. We do them differently today. We don't put who the letter is from until the end. Sincerely, Tom Hovestall. They did it at the beginning. The way they, they wrote letters back then is, this is who I am, this is who I'm writing to, the recipient, And then there was always some words of salutation. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you, or good tidings to you, or have a good day, or something else like that. That's how these letters began. But the words that are chosen are very important. Paul begins by stating who he is, not just his name. He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. An apostle is someone, as I said before, who is specifically set apart by Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you know anything about Paul and about the Bible, you should immediately say, wait a minute, Paul never met Jesus. He didn't. Paul would have been uh, alive, of course, while Jesus was here, but Paul never met Jesus like James and, uh, and John and Andrew and Peter and that group, or, or Mary Magdalene. He didn't meet Jesus like any of those people. Though he was alive during the time of Jesus was here as a young man, the Apostle Paul was an antagonist against Christianity. He hated Christianity. He was a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish rabbi who went to Harvard the Harvard of his day, under the top professor of the world at that time, Gamaliel. And he was the valedictorian of his class. So he's probably the top Jewish young scholar rabbi in his country, in the world at that time. Certainly among the greatest. Well, he's on his way to Damascus with letters from the the religious authorities in Jerusalem to arrest, incarcerate, and probably kill Jewish people would become Christians. He hates their guts. And while he's on his way, he has a turnaround. Someone blinds him, a light blinds him, and out of the sky he hears his name. And who's talking? Jesus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's life is transformed. He comes to believe that, in fact, Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And then, after he becomes a believer and is baptized, he goes out into the desert, the Bible tells us. And there, in some way that we don't know, he was taught by Jesus. How that happened, we don't know exactly. But what we do know, especially because of last week's Resurrection Sunday, Jesus was alive and in heaven. And I guess he made a trip down here. Maybe many trips. Who, Who knows what he did? In fact, maybe Paul went up there because Paul says, I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body, but I've been to heaven. So Paul says, I have been, not only I've seen the resurrected Jesus, I've been taught by Jesus himself. I was not taught by the apostles. 
I was not taught by Peter. I was not taught by James. I was taught by Jesus himself. So Paul says, I am an apostle. I have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. I have been commissioned by Jesus Christ to bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now that's weird because he's one of the best educated Jewish people in the world. And here God calls him this, he calls himself a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, I'm a Pharisee. God calls him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which is quite a stretch. But no one knew the Old Testament much better than the Apostle Paul did. And so the Apostle Paul started to, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The place where he started was a place in present-day country of Turkey called Antioch. And there was a church there in Antioch composed mainly of Jewish people, maybe all Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were there and the apostle Paul taught them for a time. And they said, now, Paul, we want to sponsor you as you go out and share the gospel with the Gentiles. And of course, the Jewish people as well. Because when Paul went on his missionary journeys, as we call them, he first went to the synagogues because there he found people that believed in the Old Testament. And he wanted to tell them that this whole Old Testament points to Jesus as our Messiah. And when he did that, many Jewish people came to faith in Jesus, but also many Gentiles. One of his trips, he went through this little town called Lystra. It's in present-day Turkey. And there, in, in there he, he met this, this mom and this grandma and this young son. Now, the mom was Jewish, and the grandma was Jewish, and their son was a half-Jew because his daddy, who was not a Christian, was a Greek. So here was this boy, Timothy, whose mom and his grandma were Jewish, and his father was Greek. And the mother and the grandmother, from the time he, this Timothy was a little boy, had taught him the Old Testament scriptures. And so now when the apostle Paul came to this town called Lystra, where Lois and Eunice, his grandma and his mom, and Timothy were attending this group of people, he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. And interestingly, because he, 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 was, he was Jewish and Gentile both, but because of his father being a Gentile, he had been taught the Jewish scriptures, but he was not Jewish because he had not been circumcised as a, the rite of passage for a Jewish boy at around the age of 12 or 13. Well, Timothy became a believer in Jesus, probably through the influence of the Apostle Paul. And then Paul went on his journey, his first missionary journey. And then he came by a second time. When he came to Lystra several years later, the second time, he said, Timothy, would you be willing to come with me? Because I think God has planted something inside of you that's special. Will you travel with me as I share the gospel with Gentiles? But, and Timothy said, yes, I will do it. But Paul says, eh, a little bit of a catch. You got to be circumcised. Now, he's not a baby. <laughs> he's not a baby at all. And he did. Why? Because Paul is going to be going into these, these churches composed, first of all, of Jewish people and Gentiles. And here he's got this, this young protege who's Jewish and Gentile. And Paul says, I don't want to cause an offense to the Jewish people 
And so Timothy is circumcised, and now he starts to travel with the Apostle Paul. Paul calls him my true son in the faith. This is probably one of Saul's, uh, one of Paul's most favorite people on earth. It's probably the case that Paul was the one who led Timothy to Christ. We know it's the case that his mother and his grandmother introduced Timothy to the Holy Scriptures. And then he started to travel with Paul. He saw what Paul did. He saw how Paul spoke. He saw what Paul suffered. And Timothy did as well. The Apostle Paul took him with him on his missionary journeys, the second one and the third one. And then at some point later in the Apostle Paul's life, after he had been already imprisoned once in Rome, we know that he probably got out of prison and there he wanted to visit the churches that he had planted and he planted many of them. But he said he, one of the ones he visited was Ephesus. And then he said, Timothy, I want you to stay in this church and be the pastor of this church. Why? Well, without question, the church to which he was assigned is the greatest church, I'm going to say, that's ever existed. Can you imagine if you're a person up here like myself, and I look down there, and I look right there, and <gasps> guess who's in the pews? They didn't have pews, but you know who's sitting right there? Mary, Jesus' mother, was in the church. You know who's sitting right there? John, Jesus' best friend, is in the church. Do you know who's right back there? A woman named Priscilla and another one named Aquila, who are excellent Bible teachers. Oh, and back there, who, you know, who, oh, he visits from time to time. His name is Peter. And guess who's there? One of the most eloquent Greek scholars named Apollos. He's in the church. Can you imagine telling stories about Jesus? And his mom is sitting there. And his best friend on earth is sitting there because they are in the church. All of these people, Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Peter from time to time, John, Mary, they're all in this church. And this is the church that we know more about than any other church in the New Testament by far. What do we know about this church? Well, this church was, plant, was started um, by a group of people who were there at Pentecost. So probably in this church, there were people, probably more than a handful of people in this church who had seen with their own eyes the risen Jesus. There were people in this church who we know from the Holy Scriptures in Acts chapter 2 were present at Pentecost. They were there when Peter preached and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were there and they're sitting there. They had seen the, Je the Lord Jesus. They had been there when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And they had gone from Jerusalem back to Ephesus. Because Ephesus, after all, is one of the most important cities in the world. It's one of the five largest cities in the world at the time. The theater, which is still there today, still used for concerts today, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, holds 25,000 people. And they determine the size of a town by the size of its theater. You take the size of the theater number and you multiply it times 10. So that means the population of Ephesus at the time of Paul was about 250,000 people, which was a huge city back at that time. It boasted what's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, 
One of the greatest temples in the world was right there in the town. And what's still there? The the Celsus Library. There's a two-story magnificent library there. I've been in the homes that have been excavated of the wealthy people that lived there in Ephesus. They had hot and they they had water pipes coming into their homes. They had home theaters with the pictures. I've seen them with my own eyes. The pictures of the actors on the walls. And they apparently had fountains with both red and white wine flowing inside their homes. I've seen their homes. I've even, used, I've even seen the public bathrooms with granite toilet seats. They're right outside those homes, probably used by the Apostle Paul. It's still there 2,000 years later. This is an incredibly important city, and he is the pastor of this incredibly important group of people. It began around 30 AD at the time of Pentecost. And then in Paul's second missionary journey, he went there to this church and there were a few believers together and he started to form them together. He began, it began by the seeds being sown at Pentecost. Then some years later, they started to cultivate the soil. And then the apostle Paul himself on his third missionary journey spent three whole years at the church of Ephesus. And who was with him? Well, Timothy was with him. And during that time, he officially planted the church. This is around in the mid-50s AD. And then the Apostle Paul, after being in this body of believers for three years, nowhere else was he this long, he moved on. And he moved on from Turkey, and he went into Greece, to Athens, and to Corinth, sharing the the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting churches. But then he had a desire to get back to Jerusalem to bring money to help the poor people in Jerusalem, the poor Christians who were going through hard times. And on his way, he decided to stop back near Ephesus, but he did not stop at Ephesus because he knew if he stopped there, they wouldn't let him get away. They, everyone said, you got to come to my house for dinner. You got to come to my house for lunch. You got to come to my house for breakfast. He'd be there too long. He says, I'm not coming to Ephesus because I know I'll never leave you guys. I want you to meet me at Miletus. And he calls for the elders to meet him. And they meet him at a town some distance from Ephesus. And he says to them, he says, I love you guys. I love you guys. But you're never going to see me again. Because I've been told by the Holy Spirit and by many people that I'm on my way to Jerusalem and things are not going to be good there. But I want you to know that I've not hesitated to preach to you the full gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's no blood on my hands. But I want you to know this. When I leave you, wolves are coming into this church. He said there are going to be wolves that are going to come from the outside into this church, and they're going to start to devour you. And he's only talking to the leaders. He says, and some of you leaders are going to turn from Jesus, and your ego is going to cause you to try to lead people to follow you, not Jesus. He says, remember, When I told you this warning, I'm crying my eyes out because I don't want you to fall. I call them the three great dangers of the church. Wolves, weasels, and worms. Every church will be attacked by wolves, outsiders, who come from the outside and can destroy the flock. Weasels, they come from the inside. They kind of weasel their way in and they can destroy the flock when their ego replaces following Jesus. And worms, they kind of rot the core, like termites. Watch out, Paul says. And he leaves them. And he goes on to Jerusalem. And in true, he's imprisoned. 
and sent to Rome, put in prison in Rome as well. And then Paul apparently is released from prison, and he he wants to he he travels again to Ephesus, even though he didn't think he would be there. But he doesn't want to stay long. He moves on, but he says, Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus now. This is the church to which I've given three years of my life. This is the church that is has has built up, has discipled the most important people in the history of Christianity. Timothy, I want you to shepherd this body. And Timothy does. Well, that's not the end. Because Timothy gets there in around the mid-60s, and he pastors this church for a period of time. We don't know how long. We know that while Timothy is probably there in, in Ephesus, though he makes trips to Rome, the Apostle Paul is executed by Emperor Nero. And then... 30 years later, around the year 95 AD, somebody comes to visit the church of Ephesus. And the person who visits, his name is Jesus. Jesus visits the church. How do we know? Read the book of Revelation. He says that he walked among the candlesticks. Jesus says, and Jesus writes seven letters to the churches. And one of those is to the church of Ephesus. And basically what Jesus writes to this church, he says, I've been walking around seeing what the church is like and and you're solid biblically. I'm so grateful. You're standing true to God's word. And those who have have tried to teach false things, these worms and these weasels and these wolves, you've dealt with them. Thank you. And you you have a church full of faithful servants. You're serving the cause of Jesus. Thank you. But you have one problem and it's a biggie. You've lost your first love. That love that you first had as a body of believers, that love you had for Jesus, that love you had for one another, the love you had for lost people, it's, it's, it's gone. You're still meeting. You're still doctrinally solid. You're, you're, still, you're still serving faithfully. But the love is, is gone. And then Jesus gives his incredible advice. No one can give advice like Jesus. He said, this is what you do. And by the way, any number of hundreds of millions of people are in marriages today where the love is lost. And Jesus, if he was there in their lives, he would say the same thing as he did to any marriage or any church. If you lose the love, this is what you got to do. Jesus says these words, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do what you did at the beginning. Remember, repent, and return. And by the way, there's not a marriage in the world that couldn't be helped a lot by that. When the love is gone, what do you do? Look for someone else? Find your soulmate? What rubbish. You remember what it was like when you first started dating. Remember what that was like? Pretty nice. You, it's all you thought about. You just wanted to be with them all the time. Remember what it was like. You, you were so kind. You wrote letters. You said nice things. All the, you, you couldn't treat each other better. Remember what that was like. Repent simply means turn around and do what you did at the beginning. Do you want to restore a marriage? Remember what it was like at the beginning. Turn around and do what you did at the beginning. Do you want to restore the love that you've lost as a church? Remember what it was like at the beginning. Turn around and do what you did at the beginning. So here we have in the Bible, from the book of Acts, chapter 2, to Revelation, chapter 2, 
We have the life cycle of a church from the year 30 to the year 95, roughly. A 60-year life cycle. This church is much older than that, but churches go through life cycles. And one of the places that a church can easily get to is a place where you're doing lots of things right, but something's gone. Now, Timothy is the pastor when they haven't quite gotten to that point. They're still at the point many years before where they're being attacked by wolves and weasels and worms. And so the Apostle Paul is now going to give his instruction to Timothy. And here's what he says. This is verse 3a. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, that's northern Greece, stay there in Ephesus. That's his first thing he says. I was reading um, Charles Swindoll's sermon on this passage, and he said, the first piece of advice that Paul gives to pastors is, stay put, stay put, stay at the task. Don't church hop, stick it out, stay the course. He said, we're in the day of jumping ship. We live in a day where we jump ship all the time into almost everything and anything. Why? When we're not dissatisfied, when we're not happy today, we jump ship. The first thing Paul says is, don't jump ship. Commit for the long haul. I think I've never met a pastor in my life, and of course I've been one for more than 40 years, but I've never met a pastor who doesn't start with great expectations. We all begin pastoral ministry because we feel that God has called us and we want to serve and we start with incredible hope and expectations. But I don't know if you've read any of the literature today, but most pastors are disillusioned in less than five years. That happens to be the truth. And the pastoral discouragement and the pastoral dropout rate today is unprecedented. It's at an all-time low as far as we know. I once heard, and I've not been able to verify this, that only one out of 10 pastors who begin as a pastor at the end of their life are still pastors. Only one out of 10. That means 90% drop out. Why? Why would we drop out? Well, there are lots of reasons. Um, but pastoral discouragement is, is, is one of them. Do you know what the average length of a pastoral tenure is? It's a... It's about three years. That's all it is. Here's I'm reading from someone named uh, Dr. Kevin Blackwell. It has been widely publicized that the third year of a tenure is when many pastors will begin looking for greener pastures. This is likely due to the reality that the honeymoon period is over and the opposition to change galvanizes Every pastor who leads a church to revitalization will experience hardships, long days, gut-wrenching meetings, and nasty emails. But do you know what the, they have found? That a pastor does not, is, is not able to institute significant change in a congregation until about the seventh year. Do your math. Do your math. We're finished. <laughs> we're, we're finished. We're done. If a pastor only stays three years and you cannot really do effective ministry until about six or seven, we're done. We're finished. We're done. Part of that is us as pastors, but part of it's you. You're going to be calling a new pastor, Lord willing, pretty soon. Love him. Encourage him. Skip the nasty emails. Come on. None of us need nasty emails. 
pay him well. Treat him well. I, I know what you've done to me. You've been very kind to me. But double that. Double that. I'm just temporary. But for the real deal, <laughs> double it. Do, do, do good. Why? Because by the way you treat this person, you're going to be, you're going to be building the body of Christ. That's what we need. We need to build the body of Christ. That's what we're in the business of. I, I, this, um, I, I think you, I don't need to tell you this, but pastor, not pastors, the commitment of people to, ch- to churches today is unbelievably low. We've never seen anything like this in America, to my knowledge. And, and I went online this week, and, and, and someone said, here's someone named Kerry Neewolf. He wrote, 10 reasons even committed church attenders are attending less often. Why are people not going to church anymore? Here they are. Number one, greater affluence. Money gives people options. Number two, higher focus on children's activities, sports, etc. Number three, more travel. Number four, Blended and single-parent families. He wrote, remember, perfect attendance for a child or a teen in a blended family is 26 uh, times a year if they have to spend the time with the other parent. So that's perfect attendance. Number four, or five rather, online options. Though, by the way, that's increasing. And thankfully, during COVID, we had online, but Recently, I've become familiar with a neighbor of mine who died, and their church was an online church. And maybe that's okay, because you get to hear such incredibly good preachers, and there are many of them in our world. And you get to sit and watch TV in your PJs with a latte, and that's kind of nice. But the church is us together. And with this person I know in my neighborhood who really passed away recently, online church, but where's the community when you're dying of cancer? Where's the community when things go rotten in your life? We need each other. We need flesh and blood together. That's what we need. That's the church. The church is not watching a sermon and singing some songs. The church is God's people gathered together to represent Jesus in our world. That's who we are. uh, Then he goes on to say, another one is the cultural disappearance of guilt. And this is a good one. I'm glad it's gone. Because we used to guilt people into going to church. If you don't go to church, God's going to get you. Well, that's baloney. But another one, self-directed spirituality. People are looking less to churches and leaders to help them grow spiritually. They're doing it on their own. And hopefully, you can put the two together. They fa- another one, the eighth one, he says, people fail to see any benefit in going to church. Why bother? We're not doesn't give you anything. And uh, his last one is, there's a massive cultural shift. We're going through a time of pretty cataclysmic change in our culture, and one of them is the lack of commitment to churches. So what do you look for in a pastor? Look for someone who's committed to the body of Christ. But if you're going to ask that of a pastor, be sure you look in the mirror. What's my level of commitment to the body of Christ? Because the body of Christ is not a pastor. We're we're Protestants. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. We're in this together. Our commitment's important too. Well, the next thing that I think it was Saleo brought up here is she, she got it exactly right. The second thing Paul says, Timothy, you must proclaim and protect God's truth. Here's how Paul wrote it. 
This is verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Obviously, I know this group of people, and I know the people in the search team here at, at, at First Baptist, but you, 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 one of a pastor's main jobs is the Word of God, to proclaim it. Well, if, before that, before we proclaim it, we, we love it. We love the Word of God. We're committed to the Word of God. We proclaim the Word of God. We protect the Word of God. That's why it's very important, obviously, in a church, any church, that when we state in our doctrinal statement, as we have done here, whoever it is, that person must be fully in alignment with that doctrinal statement, because that's part of their job, is to, to stick to what this church declares to be our fundamental truths of God's Word that we believe in. And remember, Paul warned this church that Timothy now pastors that there are going to be outsiders coming in, the wolves, who are going to teach things that are not true. And we know that happened. You know who they were? They were Judaizers. They were people who came, who were Jewish people who came from the outside into the church of Ephesus, and this is what they taught. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. So do you. And if you love Jesus, these are the rules you got to follow. And if you put Jesus together with the rules, you got it made in the shade. Paul said, no, we don't add works to the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Do we do good works? Yes, but not to earn our salvation, but as the natural result of our salvation. We must not get that messed up. Good work. Here's one of the verses, I, the verses I learned, and I think they've been our memory verses here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. It is not of works. If it was, you'd boast. But then the next verse, the very next verse, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but yes, the natural result of salvation is good works. Yes. But there were some from the outside coming in teaching that's false. But then there were insiders. There were weasels. Now, what are the weasels doing? Did you hear it? The weasels aren't adding works to salvation, what they're doing is they're adding their own personal hobby horses to their teaching. They're like, let's discuss today. Our sermon is on how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. How many do you think that could be? I mean, or did Adam have a navel or belly button? I mean, you could discuss that forever. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but those are what, what you said that they were they were concocting fanciful tales. They were experts in Bible trivia. But Paul says, we're not into Bible trivia. We're not into fictitious additions to the Gospels and all these allegories that you're coming up with because what these promote is not what God is after and what they do promote is controversy. You get into your discussions of things that don't matter one little bit and you fight over it. That is not what we're supposed to be doing. You see, the false teachers in Ephesus, they, they peddled false doctrines. They specialized in trivial matters, which stimulated division in the church. 
Paul says, don't do that. Those are the weasels. Yes, when you add something to the gospel, you destroy it. But there's another way in your teaching, Timothy, that you can, or, or that people in the church can waste people's time by specializing on things that are of trivial importance. What is good Bible teaching? Well, good Bible teaching doesn't waste people's time. It's simple, but it's never simplistic. Never. It's, it's, it, 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 as Jesus said, it's not just teaching, but Jesus says, teach them to obey. So there's application there. A, a good teacher knows how to ask a good questions. Um, he, he obviously loves the, the people that they teach. And on and on we could go, but without time. You see the false? The teachers in Ephesus were teaching things that were false, not true. They were subjective. There were things that they liked, but not things that were apostolic, what the apostles thought were important. They, they taught things that were unprofitable, not practical, that ultimately were destructive, not constructive, that were peripheral, not central, that divided people rather than edifying them. They put loads on people's backs without freeing them. They taught them that to be a good Christian is to follow the rules, which is not true. That's not what it means. When I was um, in, um, in Africa, one of the places I visited a couple times when I lived there was called Kimberley. That's where you get Kimberlite, the, the, the gemstone. There's a, Kimberley boasts the largest man-made hole in the world. And uh, the reason is because they found this uh, vein of diamonds there in this town. And then diamond uh, diggers from all over the world came and bought these little tiny plots. And they started to, to dig this deep, 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 deep hole. And they found lots of diamonds there. But guess what? The biggest diamonds were found on the surface. And I think sometimes we Bible teachers mistreat, misjudge the thing. We tell people, well, if you really know Greek and Hebrew, you can get the deep truths of God's word. That's baloney. The deep truths of God's word, the big diamonds, are on the surface that a child can understand. Now, as, deep, as, as far as you want to go down, you're never going to stop finding diamonds. You can study the Bible for, the, for a million years. You'll keep finding diamonds. But the big ones are on the surface. The man who gave us the Bible in our language was William Tyndale. And, uh, of course, he was uh, put to death because he translated the Bible from the original languages into English. And uh, as he was uh, being killed, he said this, I defy the Pope and all his lives. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than the Pope. He says, no, the Bible is not just the province of the bigwigs. God gave his word to all of us, and it's understandable to all of us. The big diamonds are on the surface. Jesus said, teach them to obey. So what do you look for in a pastor? You look for a pastor who's deeply grounded in and committed to and willing to fight for the word of God. And how will you know if someone has those qualities? If you do the same, it's the only way you'll know. You've got to be someone who loves the word of God, is committed to the word of God, is grounded in the world of God, and willing to fight for the word of God. But what's the goal? Why do we, people like myself, stand up here and, and, and preach? And, and why do many of you, I can see your faces, you're faithful teachers of God's word. Why do you do that? 
What's your goal? What are you after? Giving us bigger and bigger heads? More and more brain cells? There was a book that came out some years ago. It was one of the best-selling books in America. It's called Good to Great. And uh, it's a business book. But when I saw that, Good to Great, I thought, oh, we are people who are committed to both good and great. We are, our basis as Christians is we are based on good, the goodness of God and the good news of Jesus. That's our basis. And what are we here to do? Great. Two great things. There are two things in the Bible that are called great, that we call great. The great commission and the great commandment. The great commission. Go, get out, and and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, Jesus said, and I'll be with you forever. That's the great commission and the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourselves. We're people who are into good and great. We're into a good God, good news, a great commission, and a great commandment. And here's what Paul said. The goal of this command, his command, remember, teach and protect the word of God. The goal of this command is love, but not just a quiver in your, in your liver. That's not love. Love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some had departed from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they confidently affirm. What's the goal? Why do we do what we do? Here's Tony Evans. He wrote about this. He said, love for God. That means to love God is to passionately pursue his glory and submit to his will. And love for neighbor, that is to love people, is the decision to compassionately, righteously, and responsibly seek the well-being of others. The absence of love means that teaching, no matter how accurate, has not fully accomplished its goal. Why do we do what we do up here or in our life groups or in our Sunday school classes? Why do we do that? In the men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, why do we do this? Our goal is that we love the Lord our God and love our fellow human being. That's the goal. That's why we do what we do. Look for a pastor who is not only deeply committed to and grounded in the Word of God, but one who loves God, loves Christ's flock, whose teaching stimulates a love for God, for one another, and for lost people who don't know Jesus. That is our goal. And how will you best know that? This is how it ends. The best way that you can probably tell what's good teaching and bad teaching is what do they do with the law, interestingly. Now, God's law, and there are hundreds of commandments in this book, it can be used for several purposes. God's law, God's rules, could be used as a baseball bat. We hit people over the head with them. And that's what we churches are quite good at. We must be batting about a thousand. We're good. Oh, God's law can be used to moralize, tell people, you, God loves you if you follow the rules, which isn't true, but that's what we tell people. That's called moralism. Or all of God's laws should be applied to our society, and our job as Christians is to make sure that our society does that. That's absolute baloney. We, God gave these things to his people, 
Israel and to us as Christians. He did not give a lot of this book to uh, Washington, to the Congress. Though they're wise enough to get many of their principles from this book. But that's not our job, is not to impose the laws of God's word on people's lives. What is the purpose of the law? Well, look at what he says. We know that the law is good. That's verse 8, if one uses it properly. But we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill fathers or mothers or for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. Now, if you saw that list of sins, you'll see that it kind of follows the Ten Commandments, more or less. What is the purpose of the law? Well, the law's purpose is to show us that we need a Savior, among other things. Did you notice what what, um, Regina used this morning? See, the law is is a plumb line. And she put the Bible at the end of that string. The law is a plumb line which shows us what is straight. The law is a mirror into which we look and we can see what we really look like. Uh, The law is a flashlight. It exposes darkness. Now you don't, let's say the law is like a mirror, like a dentist's mirror. You don't drill a tooth with the mirror. It's not going to work very well. That's what the law is. And that's its proper use. You see, the law, first of all, reflects God's holy character. It protects us from the ravages of sin. So it's for our good. It helps God's people to distinguish us from our culture. It also is a standard that God has given to us, especially the Ten Commandments, as a standard for societal right and wrong. But most importantly, the law's purpose is to show us our sin and our need of a Savior. That's what the law is for. But you see, as I said before, we use it as a baseball bat. We combine it to be part of the gospel. It turns into all kinds of of, of bad things. Three words that I like to often use in describing the purpose of the law is the three L words. And these words are legalism, license, and liberty. Paul says, we are called to liberty. We're called to be the most free people in all the world. We're called to liberty, but we usually fall to one extreme or the other. The legalistic extreme is when we add things to God's word that are not in God's word, that enslaves us. And license is when we take things away from God's word that are in God's word, and that also enslaves us. We're not called to slavery, we're called to liberty. And what does the law do? The law shows us who we are and takes us to our knees so that we see the character of God and we see the holiness of God and we see the sacrifice of Jesus and we're changed. So what do you look for in a pastor? There are many things and we're going to see many of them as we go through 1 Timothy. But look for someone who sticks. Someone who sticks. Remember, and if you want someone who sticks, it's partly your responsibility. Treat him well. You want someone who, who loves the word of God. They're passionate about the God's, God's holy, holy word. You want someone who handles the, the, the law of God properly and doesn't, doesn't mishandle it. You want someone who loves God, who loves you, 
for those people who don't know Jesus. And by all means, remember the two goods, the goodness of God, that's his character, the good news of Jesus, and the two greats, the great commission and the great commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for for having brought into this world people like Paul, Timothy, and millions of others who love you, who love your word, who love your people, who love people who don't even love you at all, who need to know you. Help us, help this body, Heavenly Father, to be wise now as they're in a selection process. You say in the Bible that if we lack wisdom, we should ask you, and you give to us liberally. May you give to this church liberally your wisdom. And as a result, may this body of Christ flourish in this community to represent Jesus well and to resemble him and to to be in Riverton, who Jesus was in Jerusalem many, many years ago. It's in his name we pray. Amen.